Uh, It's good to see you this morning. I would invite you to grab your copy of God's Word. You'll be needing it. If you forgot one, don't worry. You can look in the front of the pew back in front of you and grab that one. I want to encourage everybody to read along with me when we're reading the passage. Uh, If you don't see one there, uh, check and see if your neighbor has one. And when she's not looking, you can swipe it. Uh, John chapter 14 is where we're going to be today, and um, this, you know, I, I like to interject a little humor here and there, and, and it's, I just, um, I, I want you to know that I hold what we're doing here with high, high regard, and it's, it's such an awesome opportunity to be here, worshiping around the table of God's Word. Usually when we come, it's, it's interesting as a guest speaker, you never know quite what the order of service is going to be, what songs are going to be sung, and I, I almost make the comment every time, you know, Tim he must have been praying hard about the service because the songs and everything fit together. But I did cheat a little bit. I knew that today was our observance of the Lord's table. And uh, we've been traveling. So the last three weeks, I think, with my family have been Communion Sunday each time. And, and what, actually, what an awesome privilege it is to, to observe and to celebrate what Christ did on the cross and the finished work uh, that he has accomplished. And um, so I celebrate with you today. And uh, it's, good, it's good to be with my, my Calvary family. John chapter 14, starting in, in verse 1, we're going to start reading there. As we read, what I would like to ask of you is, this is, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, his closest of, of followers. And this, this interchange is said to have happened on the, the, the night of the famous Last Supper, before Christ was going to go be crucified. I'll back up. I think I was standing too far forward. Uh, Before Christ is going to be crucified, he was spending his time with his friends and going over some very difficult news and clearing up some thinking that had been erroneous in the minds of some of the disciples. And there there are three men here who ask Jesus questions and he answers them in patience. And I'm glad, actually, they ask the questions that they do for our sake and for my sake. And so pay attention as we're reading the first 14 verses uh, what is being said, the questions that are being asked, and how Jesus masterfully uh, attempts to help them on their way of understanding what is about to happen. Uh, John fourteen one, as I said, let not your hearts be troubled. That's a great thing to start off with. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also from uh, from now on. You do not know him, or excuse me, you do know him, and you have seen him. And Philip, okay, Thomas has already spoken up. So Philip speaks up and he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is good enough for us. Jesus said to him, have, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. 
believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He repeats a couple things here. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And the Father will be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I've been praying for you for weeks now, knowing that uh, our time today would lead up around this passage, and um, that's why usually when I come up to speak, there's nothing wrong with praying again with everybody, but I, if I waited till now to pray, I think we'd all be in trouble. But I've been praying for you specifically, and, and uh, I trust that God's word will go forth in power, and the work that I need him to do is one that is spiritual, and it's not one that I can do. So uh, my job is to clearly proclaim God's word, and then uh, we need to depend on God's spirit together. Uh, to do the work that he will do. Now, don't stress out because at the end I have three points <laughs> and they're going to be quick. I said that before and they weren't so quick, but I promise you these ones will be pretty quick and uh, they're at the end. I think you'll see why we chose to do it that way and when we get to that point. There's a man named Don, as in Donald Piper, not to be confused with John Piper. He wrote a book in recent years that has received and still receives a lot of attention uh, it's, it's called 90 Minutes in Heaven. And I, I don't agree with some of the statements that he makes in this book. And I'm going to read this because it does illustrate a little bit of erroneous thinking that we have when it comes to heaven. You know, the Bible teaches much on, on heaven and the truth therein. And it's, it's meant to be an encouragement to us. In fact, today, I would like for us to consider heavenly comfort uh, for troubled hearts. Donald Miller in the book, and I'm going to quote what he said there. He opens the book up by saying, I died on January 18th, 1989. Paramedics reached the scene of the accident within minutes. They found no pulse in me and they declared me dead. They covered me up with a tarp so that the onlookers wouldn't stare at me while they attended to the injuries of the other people, the other victims. I was completely unaware of the paramedics or anyone else around me. Immediately after I died, I went straight to heaven. While I was in heaven, a Baptist preacher came onto the scene of the accident, and even though he knew that I was dead, he rushed to my lifeless body, and he prayed for me. Despite the scoffing of the EMTs, he refused to stop praying. At least 90 minutes after the EMTs pronounced me dead, God answered that man's prayers. I returned to earth. This is my story. He then describes the tragic accident in detail, and then his painful and difficult recovery in the following months afterward. Uh, but the focus of this book is about the 90-minute visit that he, he says to have, have gone to heaven, and he came back to tell about it. Um, several books like this have been written in recent years, like I said, and, and they continue to, to garner such acclaim and attention. Uh, Piper makes this statement in his book. He says, I have changed the way as a pastor, I've changed the way that I do funerals. Now I can speak authoritatively about heaven from first-hand knowledge. My job is not this morning to give book reviews or really even to give all the reasons why I would have a problem with a couple of these issues that he talks about in this book. But like I said, I bring this up because it does illustrate a point that, that we make sometimes. Uh, is, it, is it necessary for each of us to have a first-hand experience in heaven to speak with any authority on the matter. No, it's really not. I say instead of doing that, let's go with Jesus and let him describe 
what it is that's awaiting for the believer. Now, there are some theological intricacies, whether we're talking about the millennial reign or the eternal state of the believer. I'm just going to sometimes go back and forth and just call it heaven, even though there are differences between the two. But I don't think... I, I, I bring the story up because um, heaven is not in anyone's supposed experience of it. We don't need to look beyond Jesus Christ to know that heaven is for real. We can speak authoritatively about heaven because of the testimony of Scripture. Now, in John's Gospel, we find the only one who can truly give us an account of the things to come for the believer because it's his design. He's been there. He is there now. In fact, we're going to look a little bit later at what he means when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. He told his disciples to not be troubled. Why would he tell his disciples not to be troubled? What was coming, like we said? The crucifixion. Uh, this would have been a very terribly troubling time for his friends. In fact, I know we have the luxury of looking at this in hindsight. Uh, and we, we know what's going to happen. We know what's going to come about. So sometimes when these men ask these questions, we, we look at it and think, how did they not know? Jesus has already been over the news with them. He already predicted. I mean, you remember him walking down the road, talking to the disciples. They were arguing about who's going to be first. And he told them about things that were to come. And you just know it went right over their head. Uh, you can tell sometimes when that happens, you, you parents of kids, those of you who uh, work with kids, sometimes you say things and it's just like, well, oh, that didn't register at all. Uh, you wives married to husbands, sometimes you know what I'm talking about as well. We need this text because we need rest for our troubled souls. Uh, Jesus' departure and his, his death imminently coming uh, and his repeated use of the phrase, I'm going to go, I'm going to leave, I'm going to depart. If you read chapters uh, 14, 15, and 16, that's the language that he's using. He's preparing his friends uh, for something that's going to happen. And he wants them to not only be comforted, but th- get this. Jesus is dying and he's leaving. And he wants his friends to realize that it is better for him to go. It is better for them that he go. Um, somebody says that Christ in us is better than Christ with us. And I think through the passage that we're going to look at, uh, once again in greater, greater detail, we'll see that that is, that is absolutely true for us. Why do we need rest for our troubled souls? I don't know if you've ever been tempted when you, when you have a friend or a loved one who's going through something difficult. You know, sometimes what comes to mind is, is a quick, easy statement There may not be anything wrong with a statement to be made, but sometimes we we have these little bumper sticker phrases that that come to mind, and and we may mean them to be helpful. Maybe you've been told some of these things, and they're just maybe not packaged quite the right way. Sometimes there's there's nothing wrong with giving somebody truth, whether or not they receive it uh, well. Sometimes we can be careful about how we do that. Uh, But sometimes it's just we need the right word at the right time. You ever notice that? You ever known that to be true when you're going through something difficult? Uh, sometimes people can just say something that's true and it might come across offensive. You know, all things are going to work out. Well, yeah, I know that. Or maybe that's not what I really, really what I want to hear in this instant. Or maybe it is. That's a, that's a wonderful thing to hear sometimes. Uh, Jesus is giving his friends truth that they really need to hear. And that's what we have in chapter 14. It's a, it's a chapter filled with promises. Do you guys like the promises of Scripture? Isn't it good in this changing world where nothing in any two days seems the same sometimes? 
Everything changes. You know, you, your employer, you, you know, I, I used to think, I used to have jobs that, that I thought were very secure. And um, my wife can say the same thing. You know, job security is something that people talk about a lot. But for really, from one day to the next, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know the decisions that your loved ones are going to make all the time. You don't know the decisions that your children are going to make. You don't know the decisions that our leaders of our country are going to make. You don't, I'm not causing, I'm not trying to give room for alarm. Just the fact that we don't know in this changing world what is going to come next. In fact, God testifies of that very fact. So what a wonderful thing it is to have the promises of Scripture. Chapter 14, the word Father appears 22 times. This chapter is a chapter about the Father. Jesus wants us to know the Father. And that is the prescription that He gives for troubled hearts here. And uh, I think it's, He doesn't need my approval, but I think there could be better no better subject to even talk about. This is what we see in this chapter. Jesus has promised us a place in our Father's house. Secondly, that Jesus has provided a way to know the Father. Thirdly, and thankfully, Jesus gave us power for life in ministry. So we're going to look at three things. I, I think this is original to me. I, I look at a lot of commentaries, guys, and I read a lot of articles. Sometimes I'll listen to a broadcast to gain some understanding in a passage before I speak on it. And so it's hard to tell sometimes if I've ever had an original thought. <laughs> when I approach something like this, I, I learn so much from other people and I read so many books uh, that I wonder what actually is Nathan Raish's, but maybe that's really not even important. There was a little girl back here when I was putting on the the microphone, and I don't remember ever seeing her. She may still be in here. But she said, you know, you look like a, a reporter, because I was putting on, like I was going to take a call or something like that. I said, well, hey, in a way, that's really all I am. I, I report the things that I've learned, and, and the, really the luxury of being a speaker when it comes to God's Word is you just tell and proclaim what God has, has already said. So let me just report uh, what I know about Scripture, and what I know about the topic, and what I know about this. But I came up with three points. They all start with the letter P. That doesn't ever happen. Uh, with me, and they're, they're coming. They're coming quickly. During the Last Supper, there are three discourses, or three conversations in this discourse uh, as Jesus responds to the three men. Peter, first of all, what does Peter say? His, his question, his one question is, where are you going? And again, Peter, do you not know? Jesus has, has given you the details about where he's going, and even when... Because now you know the time has come. You have to know. So Peter, Peter says, where are you going? And that's uh, verses 36 of chapter 13 through uh, chapter 14, verse 4. P- Thomas, his question isn't where are you going, but he asks, we do not know where you're going. Basically, how do we get there? Philip comes along and he says, Lord, Lord please just show us the Father. Uh, verses 12 through 14 serve as a transition into the next chapter as Jesus will talk more about the work of the Spirit. Jesus taught during a long time, for a long time during the Last Supper. And uh, he tends to the eleven, providing important instruction to them. He says, stop being troubled. You know how that's, that's stated there? The grammar queens in here would know that that's a, a present imperative. That's to, if, if Jesus tells them to stop being troubled, if they're going to continue being troubled, that's disobedience, right? Stop being troubled. Don't be troubled. Uh, you say, well, that's easier for you to say, Jesus. I mean, this is a difficult situation, right? And I'm going to be troubled because my Lord, my Savior is leaving, and, and we don't quite know what to do with a dead king. He's leaving. What do we do? I try not to be so hard on people 
Um, especially lately, I think the Lord has been nurturing my heart through some things and showing me in myself areas that need improvement. And so sometimes when I, when I hear something that somebody did, when I'm tempted to think, how in the world could they do such a thing? Or that doesn't make any sense to me. And I, I fly off the handle with some easy judgment. I've been, I've been challenged lately to just reel it back a little bit and ask a couple questions. Why? Why is it that that person chose to do what they did? Of course, the testimony of Scripture is true and that we know why we do the things we do, don't we? Don't you know why you do the things you do? It is because in your heart you want the things you want. That's why we do what we do. And, and Jesus in his patience seeks to deliver us and to change the desires of our heart. The whole farewell discourse can give us peace in the midst of uncertain times. Don't let your heart be troubled. He repeats this again in verse 27. Stop being troubled. Don't be anxious for anything, right? Matthew chapter 6, Philippians 4. Jesus had just spent three years with these men. So that's why I think they were partly troubled. But also, if you put yourself in the, in the conversation during this dinner, I think there's one other big reason why these men were troubled. They looked at the friendship that they had with each other, and Jesus looked at Peter. Remember, Mr. Iscariot had just been dismissed. He left to do what he would do to continue his betrayal, and uh, he was called out on that. But in this conversation, Jesus looks at Peter, and he tells Peter this awful news. What did he tell him? You're going to deny me, not just once. You're going to deny me openly three times. And so if I were there hearing this, I would think, Peter, of all people, no, this, this cannot possibly be. What kind of cataclysmic event? How, how far unglued does this whole thing have to come for Peter to deny Christ? Not once, not twice, but three times. What, what, what is going to happen? So I think that further troubled, further troubled the heart's of the disciples, it would, have tried, it would have troubled mine. This world is a troubling place, is it not? Listen to this outlook on life. Job, he said in chapter 14, verse 1 of his book, he said, anyone born of a woman is short of days and full of trouble. Well, thanks. <laughs> yeah, this, it's, it's a hard place. We live in a broken world. And who's to blame? Us. Mankind, we broke it. We break things. Thank God that Jesus is in the business of redemption and it shall include all these broken things. Can you resonate with that though? Life is full of trouble. We come in here on Sunday and, and it's the smiley time. There's a, a time of jubilation and there should be. There's a time of celebration and there really should be. Don't forget the world that we live in, the world that needs the Christ we enjoy. And I don't think we need to be turning a blind eye to the, the struggle of life that we go through, right? Um, my dog, when he does something wrong in the house, and I'll leave that up to your imagination, whatever it might be, he just decides not to look at that area of the room. Like it just doesn't even exist if he doesn't look over there. He's in trouble, he knows, he looks, he's cowering. He wishes he were in the room to get chastised, but he just decides not to look because if it doesn't, if it doesn't see it, it doesn't exist. That's why children hide things. That's why we conceal Sometimes, but it doesn't change the fact that it's there. It doesn't change the fact that it needs to be dealt with. Social troubles, right? Crime, issues abroad, issues in our city, uh, disappointments. People 
You know, this life would be pretty good if it weren't for people sometimes, right? People disappoint us. They let us down. Circumstances, loss of, loss of loved ones, sickness, diagnoses that you can do without, changes in life that you really, maybe you didn't see them coming, at least not so soon. Seasons of great trouble. Uh, I've been praying through Psalm 25 each morning lately, uh, and he says, you know, that in verse 17, that the troubles of my heart are enlarged. But Jesus is the only one who can deliver. Spiritual turmoil. Sometimes the suffering is our fault. Trouble. Even when you obey God. Well, that's not supposed to happen. Even when you obey God, you can suffer trouble. Acts 14, verse 22, Paul said that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. So what do we do when our hearts are troubled? What do we do? You guys can advance one slide. I'm not sure this is going to... Before I break something, which would be entertaining, but we can do without it. I'll I'll just leave that one alone. Um, What should we do when our hearts are troubled? What do you do with your troubled heart? Where do you go? Jesus says, stop being troubled. We've already said that. And he said, believe in God and believe also in me. Give it to Jesus. His answer here is quite simple, and it's on the next one. Believe. Believe in Jesus. I've said this before when I've been with you, and I, and I, I don't think I'm oversimplifying this, but you tell me what problem it is that you face in life. What, what problem, what, what, pit, what pit do you find yourself in? What struggle, what difficulty, what issue do you face that is not in some way at least tied to your belief? That's why when we say things, folks, like Jesus is the answer, the gospel can answer any issue that we face, it may not change the cancer. It may not change the fractured relationship. It may not change the fact that tomorrow you might lose your job, but you know what? The gospel is central to everything we believe. Jesus is in control. The answer is in a system of belief. Whether that not doesn't absolutely solve every overt problem, maybe the overt problem isn't really the problem all the time. You don't need you are you are particularly perceptive people, so you don't need me to tell you this. I'm just going to go ahead and say this though: that today belief in something is popular. It's kind of trending right? Believe in something. You remember the Nike ad from recently? It's not just one guy. I know you're thinking of one guy, but there's a number of different athletes that are in this ad. And the slogan was, believe in something, even if it costs you everything. Remember that? Believe in something, even if it costs you everything. Belief, no matter what it's in, seems to be in style. I know people that are sincere and sincerely wrong. I've been there. I would say this, and friends, I think this is important for us in Christian circles. I think it's, this is important for us in churches to get this. The object of your faith is infinitely more important than the sincerity of your faith. Let me explain. Jesus says, believe what? Believe in anything? No. Believe in anything, as long, even if it costs you everything. No. Jesus is saying, believe in whom? Believe in him. Believe in me, Jesus says. That's the answer. Are you kidding, Jesus? That might be a little overstated. That might be like the Sunday school answer. We're going through real-life problems, 
and you're going to tell us to believe in you, like that's really going to fix things. Yes, it is. That's going to fix the problem that they faced. That is the answer. That is the prescription uh, for their troubled heart. The answer is Jesus himself. Jesus gives, and I'm, and I'm there, finally. He gives three encouraging words to troubled disciples. First of all, the promise of heaven. The promise of heaven. I think I have a slide for that. He's preparing his, his father's house. You know, you know it's kind of funny. When, um, when Jesus talks about preparing his father's house, he doesn't say he's preparing a hospital. Right? You guys don't like hanging around in hospitals too much. I don't. I've spent too many time, not for myself, but visiting others. Thank God um, that a lot of them have, have gotten better, but it doesn't always go that way. Nobody would want to live in a hospital, right? Uh, go and prepare you a place. It is my father's hotel. No, it's a permanent dwelling. It's a permanent dwelling, and I think there are some misconceptions about it that maybe we won't spend much time going into uh, but in ancient Israel, when a mom or a mother-in-law or a, an uncle or somebody, would, or somebody was adopted and taken care of by the family, when somebody would need to move in, uh, they didn't give them an elaborate setting oftentimes. They would just add this mud brick wall onto their normal dwelling place, and it would be just kind of an addition for that person. Some older translations, with much respect to all the work and the, the care and consideration that went into these older translations of Scripture, uh, some of them used the word mansions, and I think this day uh, that would bring uh, a misconception. Uh, you know, that if maybe you didn't get your MTV crib here on this life, uh, that you had it coming. Maybe in heaven when you die you can get all the elaborate mansions. You know, I have a mansion waiting for me just over the hillside, right? Uh, not always the impression that I think we should get on that. It's going to be full of splendor and full of wonder. Uh, Revelation 21, it's going to be a dazzling place of beauty. But I don't think the nature of the room is going to be the emphasis. What makes heaven so great? I, I speak a lot to kids groups. And we talk about heaven and, and all the splendor and the wonder of what it's going to be like. Right? And it's a wonderful thing to consider. And I'm not discounting any of that. But what's the best part of heaven? Jesus! He's going to be there. And we're not there yet. To be with him is going to be the very best place. The very best, I don't care where it is and, and what uh, mansion we do or don't have, as long as he's there, that to me, that's going to be our home. And he says that. I am the answer. You're going to have a home for me. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Now, that doesn't mean that he has a tool belt on. I know in my mind, I, I'm a very visual thinker, so I just imagine Jesus you know, hanging sheetrock. Or like holding up joists or something. And that's not, that's not what's going on. I think, now there may be more preparation going on. And I think in some degree there is. But I, the, the very first and the biggest way I think Jesus went to prepare a place for us is by the events of Easter. What we celebrate. The death, burial, resurrection. He has prepared a place for us. He's not even done yet. It's not pie in the sky, wishful thinking or escapism. Um, I thought I would get an amen there, but I didn't. So I'm going to call on C.S. Lewis uh, to get me the amen. Uh, he says in his book, you know, the quotable C.S. Lewis, he says in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, have you ever heard this statement, by the way, that somebody is so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good? How many of you have heard something like that? <laughs> yeah, it's usually somebody that's meant to, to bash a Christian or a churchgoer. 
They're just so heavenly minded that they're no good. C.S. Lewis said, A continual looking forward to eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do. That's our job. We are meant to be forward thinking about heaven. He said, It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. Excuse me, if, if you read history, you will find that, some, that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages. Think about this, the, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade. All left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were focused and preoccupied with heaven and the things therein. It is since Christians have largely ceased nowadays to think of their world, of another world rather, that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, Lewis says, and you will get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. A Puritan preacher named Richard Baxter lived some 76 years on this planet. His life was just rife with Lots of different forms of suffering that really, you, if you knew about them, and you, some of you do, you would not wish them on anybody. A life of a very difficult lot. And God preserved his years somehow for 76. And somebody said, you know, uh, given all your sufferings, what, how have you managed, uh, Dr. Baxter, to be so productive and faithful all these years? And his answer was simple, and he says, for uh, 30 minutes every day I think about heaven. Think about heaven. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus says. Every barrier between us and heaven is being removed by the one who went to go prepare a place. There are some popular views on heaven that don't even include Jesus. You ever notice that? Um, I don't typically look to music for my theology by itself. I think there's some excellent music that is written just rich with theology even modern worship songs, and I, and I love it. I remember when I was a, a young believer, I heard this song, or actually I watched the movie Field of Dreams. I don't know if you've ever watched this. Uh, somebody came up to Kevin Costner, and he, he looked at the baseball field, and I, I, I know how a nice baseball field can elicit feelings of grandeur, right? And uh, every time I go, I went and saw the, the tigers, and the field is just, it's beautiful. And uh, somebody said, is this heaven? And his answer was, no, this is Iowa. Heaven is going to be so much more than we think. It seems like people in country music sing about heaven a lot. Hank Williams, Conway Twitty, um, Billy Ray Cyrus, not Miley, she didn't sing about heaven. But heaven will be a place of dirty roads for miles, right? Dogwood trees and honeybees. Hank Williams said, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, then I don't want to go there. Heaven is going to be so much greater than even our most ridiculous ideas of what it was going to be. I remember when I got saved as a young adult. For about the prior 10 years almost, there was a very popular song singing about heaven. It was really catchy, and our youth group used it um, going to Mexico as a theme song, and I I really actually, I enjoyed the song because it was so catchy and and lively. It was by a a band that was in style then, uh, Audio Adrenaline. They sang a song called uh, Big House. I don't know if any of you have ever heard that that song. The lyrics are short, so I'll read it. I don't know where you lay your head or where you call your home. I don't know where you eat your meals or where you talk on the phone. I don't know if you've got a cook, a butler, or a maid. I don't know if you 
got a yard with a hammock in the shade. He's trying to sing about heaven. Um, I don't know if you've got some shelter, place, say a place to hide. I don't know if you've Live with friends in whom you can confide. I don't know if you've got a family, say your mom or dad. I don't know if you feel love at all, but I bet you wish you had. And the chorus is a little bit more <laughs> troubling. <laughs> Come and go with me to my father's house. Come and go with me to my father's house. It's a big, big house, right? With lots and lots of room. A big, big table with lots and lots of food. A big, big yard where we can, what? Play football, Yeah. I don't know. If there's a sport in heaven, it might not be football. I'm a 49ers fan, so I'm still, I've been bitter since I was like 18 months old. It may not, may not be football. Big, big yard where we can play football. A big, big house. It's my father's house. Well, you, re, you just heard all the lyrics to that song. Not one mention of Jesus. Not one mention of the gospel. I know I, maybe I shouldn't be so hard on it. It's not really the point. But a heaven without Jesus. Let's be careful. Let's be careful. Uh, Jesus provided also not only uh, the promise of heaven, but the path to heaven. Thomas, he says, Jesus, I don't even know what you're talking about. Where, where is it? How do I get to heaven? Uh, first of all, congratulations to Thomas, a man asking for directions, right? He wanted a GPS. Jesus, you're going to heaven. Tell me how to get there. That's all I want to know. Cut to the chase. Uh, my wife knows that I don't deal with subtleties very well. If you want to say something, you need to say it. Otherwise, I might miss it. I don't take hints very well. Uh, Thomas wasn't wanting a hint. He just wanted uh, the answer. And Jesus answers and he says, I am the way to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 6. It's hard to summarize the entire theology of the book of John in one statement. I don't think we always need to, but that's pretty close to it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and he is the life. And he has spared no expense to proving that to us. Access to the Father comes through Jesus. You think, well, that's an awesome verse, right? John 14, 6. It's one we should memorize. He's the way, the truth, and the life. But I think at the same time, there's no more offensive verse these days than John 14, 6. I think to deny it, and folks, look, don't be soft on that. Don't waffle on the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way. It's, it's exclusive, Right? I remember thinking as a scoffer, I, I thought, you're going to tell me Jesus is the only way? How narrow is that worldview? You have people who are, like, what about the, the Sikhs? What about the most devout Muslim? What about um, the Mormon missionaries? What about them? They're, they're trying so hard to do something. And you say Jesus is the only way? He is the only way. And I thought that was narrow and restrictive and robbing of freedom. I think rather than marveling that Jesus is the only way, I think what marvels my heart and what, what just puts me on my heels is the fact that there has been made a way for a sinner like me to enjoy the presence of God forever. Are you kidding? There has been made a way for heaven. Jesus provides the path to heaven for us. Thirdly, power from heaven. So Jesus, you're telling us about heaven. You told us how to get there. What do we do now? That's probably my follow-up question. I, I like to, whenever somebody, whenever I'm taught something, if it's, you know, you're, you're, you're being taught how to cook something or if you're being taught how to build something, there's always a so what section at the end. Like, what's the whole point? <laughs> you know, why do I need an instant pot? Or what, you know, why, tell me what it is. What's the point? At the end of a sermon, what's the point? You've been talking. Jesus, you've been telling us about heaven, how to get there, what the plan is. So what's the point? What do I do now? 
Jesus is providing the answer for us. Uh, Power for greater works. Do you notice that? In verse 12, he says, whoever believes, whoever believes. This isn't just a few from our church. This is whoever believes. We can do greater works. An interesting thing to say, and there's a lot of misconception there. I don't think it means that we have the ability to go to the hospital down the road and heal everybody on the spot. And if we can't do that, that God's a liar. I didn't see the disciples going around walking on water, habitually raising the dead. So what did Jesus mean by greater works? What is, what is he talking about? Let's remember that Christianity at the time, the, the way, Jesus is saying he's the way, the earlier Christians were called by officials, the followers of the way. What is he, what is he talking about there? This was a small area. Uh, Christianity was a Jewish thing at the time. It was within, there were only 120 of them. For crying out loud, when Jesus died, there were no more recorded than 120 followers of him. What happened immediately after that? Acts chapter 2, which I believe is the birth of the church, the day of Pentecost. What happened? Peter gets up and he preaches in boldness, proclaiming as a reporter just what Jesus has said and done. And what happens? 3,000 people and more get saved on that first day. That's more than the entire scope and span of Jesus' ministry. I think that he's, that's what he's talking about here. Greater things, not in terms of quality. Right? You raise your friend Lazarus from the dead. That's quality. That's like varsity stuff. And I don't see him, them all doing all that all the time. Not that it's a better miracle or even a worse one. They're just doing greater, not in terms of quality, but in quantity maybe. And scope, certainly. Jesus told them that they'll be his witnesses, right? In Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria. Jesus didn't live on this earth long enough to see that. And then to the uttermost parts of the world. You have brothers and sisters on the dead opposite end of this planet, worshiping. It's a different time of day for them. But they're worshiping the same God who died for you and died for me. We have seen greater works. And greater works than these are yet to come. On the day of Pentecost, there's more believers than on even in the, the life of Christ here on his, in his 33-some years on earth. So greater things, and we also need to seek him in prayer finally. It is prayer that springs from faith in Jesus and prayer that is offered to the glory of God. We talk about prayer a lot. You've gone through, how many of you have ever been in a time in your life where you can just tell people are praying for you? I'm not talking like superstitious thing, you know. I'm just talking, you can tell. There's a peace that cannot be explained. And you can, people say, hey, and by the way, when you say that you're going to pray for somebody, one thing that might be helpful, and just that we, I would encourage you, not that you're forgetting to pray for somebody, but I've, I've tried to get in the habit of, you know, I'm going to pray for you, sister. Then I stop there and I pray for you. Um, just helps me to, to get in the habit of, of not just leaving somebody wondering if I'm actually going to pray for them, but Pray. Some things about prayer. How, how is it that we are supposed to pray? Prayer requires a relationship with God through Jesus. If you want my notes, you can have them. I'm just going to burn through a couple of these and we'll be done. Prayer should be offered in alignment with Christ's will and character. Sorry, but the Lamborghini may not be in his will. It might be. Prayer should be directed to the glory of you. Well, to the glory of the Father. You notice when Paul prays, all that he prays in the, United, in, the, in the New Testament, all that he prays is for 
immaterial things or for the needs of other people, spiritual needs. That's what he prays for. I believe God loves to answer prayers like that. Prayer should be directed to the glory of God. Prayer should flow from a believing heart. Again, we're talking about belief. You say, well, well Jesus, I, on the authority of Scripture, I understand that you love the lost. You love those who are on a, a path away from you. Well, I have a friend. I have a mom who doesn't know you. Could you use me today to tell her the good news? Why would he love to not answer a prayer like that? Prayer according, prayer according to the will of God. And don't be so soft on this either. You know, if you're like me, sometimes you pray like this. God, and we're just, since we're talking about evangelism, God, what, ab- what about my neighbor? Could you save Tim? Then I pray that you'd give me an opportunity to share with him. But if he doesn't, then I pray that I'll be at peace with that. No, don't give, don't, don't be praying for the plan B. I pray, God, would you save him today? God, would you provide the money for this bill? Lord, would you take this sickness from me? Be bold, ask big things. Don't waffle around and, and we understand that God's will may not be ours. But ask big things. We get so used to asking, to throwing the low, slow pitch. Right? And I say that being respectful. Somebody might misconstrue what I'm saying. Ask for big things. You have unsaved entire family. I have a family. I was the first believer out of a, uh, a pagan family. Big family. And I didn't say, God, if you want to save one of them, that'd be great, but you don't really have to because I understand it may not be your will. I understand it'll tear me up for the rest of my life knowing that I have friends and loved ones dying in a, in a godless eternity. But if you don't really want it, no, I ask big things. God, would you save them? Use me today. Give me boldness today. Ask big things. If it's not his will, it's not his will. But that's not our business. People say, well, well Nate, you don't know who's the elect. But how do you know? If you're, if you're witnessing, the Bible talks about elect, those who are chosen and those who are not. We're afraid to talk about that for some reason. I think it's God's business. I think it's none of your business and none of mine to think, well, he may not be elect, so I'm not going to share the gospel. Preach the gospel to every living creature. Let him sort it out. There are things that are on God's side of the fence that are not on mine, and there's a reason for that. It seems like I'm getting pretty serious. I, it is a serious matter. We, we, we are careful to ask because we just we, we play the work of the Holy Spirit and we think that God couldn't possibly do, do something. He can, and he does. If he has saved you with, with as, as good-looking as you are, as nice as you are, I understand. If he has saved you, he could save anybody, right? His arm is not shortened. He can save. So do you have a troubled heart today about X, Y, Z? I'm saying that there's a concrete answer for you. Focus on the one who is the Redeemer. Focus on the one who has gone now to prepare a place for you. The answer is not a change in circumstance. The answer is not even the provision of any one thing. The answer is a person. And it's Jesus Christ. He has prepared a place for us in the Father's house. He has shown us the way. It is Him alone. And He has returned to the Father. And He has sent His Holy Spirit to us, giving us power for life in the here and now. Let's pray. Father, um, I, didn't, I didn't think I would go a couple minutes over, but I did, and I'm, I, I 
I pray, Lord, that beyond anything that was said, that, that you have done work in our hearts. You've overcome my shortcomings. Thank you, Lord, for the time that we have had together and for your love to us. I pray that this adult Bible fellowship hour will be uh, beneficial. And not only to us, you know, as, as those who we, we come, and we, I don't think it's wrong to come expecting a blessing, but Lord, that's not the end of it. We come expecting that you would be honored and glorified through us. I pray that no matter what somebody in here is facing, maybe the invitation is not just uh, come to Jesus for repeated renewal and refreshment. Maybe the, the challenge for people in here, somebody, is, hey, come to Jesus Christ. He can remove the penalty of the sin that you have been bearing on your shoulders this entire life. Would you come to him in faith? Respond. A friend, if that's you today, all you have to do you know, we, we, we saw Jesus didn't tell him, you know, you go dip yourself in the pool and clean off seven times and memorize this poem, pray this prayer. It's an issue of belief. So, friend, would you come to him in sincerity? And just go ahead and ask him right now. Don't let another moment pass. God, would you save me? I understand who Jesus is. I understand the, off, the, the offer of what he's, he's giving. I also understand my plight as a sinner. There's nothing I can do to add a moment to my life, and there's nothing that can add favor in your sight because all are sinners. God, would you forgive me? Restore a relationship with you. Give me life. Um, Lord, I pray for the rest of this day for those in here who are troubled by great things that just need a, a look on the Master today. I just need to be reminded that, uh, yep, there is one in, in, in control. He's in charge. We're okay. Uh, the deceiver has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but you know what? The one who has final authority over my soul and all things pertaining to it, Lord, I, he, my, my life is in your hands. I thank you again for this day and for each one who is here. Uh, guide our thinking. I pray that your praise would be on our lips for the things that we know about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.